0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keen On, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Tuesday, March 21st, 2023. It's supposed to be the first day of spring in San Francisco in Northern California. It's raining. It's been raining for the last few months. It's a very odd, surreal, unsettling weather environment. And of course, that's reflected more broadly in the cultural and political environment in America. Today, on Tuesday, March 21st, Donald Trump announced that he's supposed to be arrested. This is the new, what we might think of as the new abnormal. uh, An America of paranoia, rumor. Some violence, lots of imagined violence and a degree of reality, perhaps summarized by the fact that the porn star, whatever that means, because everyone's a porn star these days, Stormy Daniels said that she'll dance down the street if Trump goes to jail. I wonder if that's a threat. I certainly don't want to see Stormy Daniels dancing down the street, but we will see if Trump gets arrested and one wonders whether he wants to be arrested. This is an America of rumor, of paranoia, far-right activists apparently aware of a a trap after Trump calls for protests. Who knows whether Donald Trump himself is a false flag. It's a hall of mirrors. Um, Significant increase in online threats as the potential Trump indictment looms. But of course, anyone can threaten online, whether that results in real violence is another question and the reality is that there is some reality here as the New York Times one of the last bastions of reality in America a certain kind of reality suggests the investigation of Donald Trump and the Stormy Daniels scheme is serious Uh, New York Times maybe less as the last bastion of reality is the last bastion of seriousness but how to be serious in America, how to understand reality, how to make sense of this circus. My guest today, I think, uh, is one of uh, a new generation of young journalists and thinkers and creatives who are both creating this America and trying to make sense of it. Kerry Howley is an iconic Writer for New York Magazine and the author of a new book today with a a perfectly appropriate title, Given the Surreal Nature of America on Tuesday, March 21st, Bottoms Up and the Devil Laughs, A Journey Through the Deep State. And where else could Kerry be talking to us from but the fair city of Los Angeles? Kerry, welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Are you real, Kerry?
1: Um, I mean, I'm not certain whether we exist in a simulation. I, I think, I think identity is incredibly fragmented and unstable. And that's a lot of what this book is talking about. So I have no idea. Are you real?
0: I don't think so. I'm trying go. to be real, but it's a struggle. <laughs> um,
1: it's hard to keep us together.
0: So yeah, we can be unreal together. So you've talked in some of your New York uh, magazine pieces about the new abnormal in America, uh, on this weird day, your book's just out. It's perfect for you. Although as we were chatting beforehand, you're not so sure as a writer, um, a, a former president has announced he's going to get arrested. Who knows whether he is or he isn't. It, this could have been invented. I don't know, by a mix of Gabriel G- Garcia Marquez and Don DeLillo. What exactly is going on in America on, uh, march 21 2023 carrie
1: well i think that we live in a place where trust in institutions is profoundly eroded in that's a banal statement but there um i find the fictions of say QAnon or uh, surrounding a lot of the trump ferment to be very interesting and I'm interested in knowing where these kind of fantastical stories, what makes them possible. And I think a lot of what makes them possible is the fact that there truly is a deep state. There is a vast, unaccountable bureaucracy, um, which for a while attracted a kind of um, mystique, a kind of feeling of unquestioned sacred trust. And that has now completely eroded. Um, and so this, there's the this sense that we have no idea what's going on. We don't know who is listening to us. Um, we don't know who is in charge. And so people project, you know, their darkest, often perverse fantasies on this absence of knowledge. And that happens across the political sphere.
0: Is this the world of Joseph K? I I mean, Kafka wrote about this at the beginning of the 20th century. Has anything changed over a hundred years? The castle, the trial, it sounds as if Kafka could be authoring this.
1: You know, I don't know if our situation is new, but I think maybe there's a kind of naivete today about what's real and unreal, about, oh, oh, this this is a source of information that um is objective and um that i'm not going to challenge and part of what the book tries to do is say that many people who are like profoundly paranoid are onto something um and you know i I think i think the real enemy is this kind of naive certainty and that feels of our time to me
0: is that um we can all make fun of the New York Times. But is that the certainty of the New York Times? Uh, one of their editorials suggests that the Stormy Daniels scheme is serious. I mean, it is real. There are people in court. Trump might go to jail. Jails exist. Lawyers exist. The New York Times exists. You and I, whether we like it or not, exist. There is still reality.
1: There is a reality, yes.
0: <laughs> a, so, so you don't think a reality and an alternative reality is the QAnon reality of fakes and deep fakes and paranoia and imaginary plots and real plots?
1: I mean, I think there, I think it's dangerous to approach anything with um, an incurious certainty, basically. And um, a lot of that, it's not the New York Times in particular. I mean, it's very important to have these well-funded institutions to conduct investigations. Um, it's, it's, but it is kind of the pose of journalism in some ways. This, like, this insistence that, um, facticity only has one valence. Whereas mm-hmm. I think the world, the, the poet, Joy Graham talks about something. She, she talks about coordinates of here and, um, I'm really taken by this phrase, coordinates of here I think there's a kind that of- that
0: again, coordinates of what? Of here
1: Hearness. H e r e.
0: H e e h e r e.
1: N e s s. Yeah. Um, and
0: a kind um, of ontological certainty, which obviously doesn't really exist.
1: Well, I, it has more positive connotations in her telling. It's it's a kind of attending to, a kind of paying attention, in which you're open to many different sources of information, um, and and that that is more appealing to me i think than a kind of f- flat reality
0: and you seem to both write about this world but you're also part of it and a product of it you taught it mm-hmm. um in iowa at the creative writing program for a while and you gave all that up you resigned which is a hard thing to do and you went over to new york magazine you write books um do you think that what you call the coordinates of hereness requires if we're to make sense of it do you have to have one foot in fiction one foot in non-fiction one foot in books one foot in journalism one foot in academia one foot in publishing that we can't commit ourselves to anything
1: i think so i i think there has to be an openness to different modes of information um in this book which is really a work of essay in that it's synthesizing so much that um, investigative journalists who are not me have done the hard work of of excavating. Um, I'm trying to draw, you know, I'm drawing from memes, like the one that's the source of the title, and from um, deeply buried stories about whistleblowers and from works of poetry. Um, to try to understand what it is to live in the age of data.
0: The age of data. um, I mean, that's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot. There's always been data, whether it's digital or analog. What is it about today's quote, what you say, the age of data, that makes it the defining quality of consciousness or false consciousness?
1: So I I think there's two ways to answer that. One is that we so rarely talk about what it is. Like it has a physical reality, right? It's made of electrons. The internet actually is a series of tubes, right? And we don't talk about the hardware. And that makes it feel, I think, more difficult to confront and um, uncomfortable to discuss, and so I was really interested in, <clears throat> excuse me, in in the book in penetrating a little bit of that physical reality, like the actual waves that we bathe in. And the other answer is like, you know, you're referring to like, there's always been data. Yes, there has, or there has been for a long time. Um, but I think there is something distinct. There's an anxiety that so many of us are feeling but not naming, born of the fact that at this point, we're leaving pieces of our identity in so many distinct places. And what I mean by that is there are pieces of me in Facebook messages. There are pieces of me on text, in email, in the cloud, in various like digital compartments um, that can be reassembled to paint an entirely false picture of who I might be. Um, And then, you know, as we were talking about before, like, who am I is like a it's not, there's no clear answer to that. Like we're constantly creating our own identities and it feels that we've lost control over those identities in a way. And that's precisely what happens to one of the protagonists in this book, Reality Winner. She, um, she has an identity. She leaves pieces of herself all over the place. And then the state, the, the, these prosecutors reassemble that identity to paint a, a completely absurd picture of her as a terrorist and in a much, in a, in a much less um, public way, I think a lot of us are feeling the possibility of being misinterpreted and misunderstood and that we're leaving these digital traces everywhere.
0: Well, reality winner though is exceptional. You wrote about her and in fact, uh, the essay you wrote or the, the piece you wrote now is being turned into a movie featuring Amelia Jones, variety reports on that um why why is this different from any other celebrity stuff um and 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 the fate of reality winner is exceptional isn't it i mean for better or worse i'm not justifying it but there's only one reality winner and and Mm -hmm. only one person can even have the name reality winner it's such (laughs) an appropriate name again it could have come out of a, a delilo book it's white noise it's a better version of white noise than Delillo could ever create himself.
1: Yeah. So what is the question?
0: So the question is for viewers and listeners who don't know who reality winner Uh, is. Tell us a little bit about her and how you, so to speak discovered her and, and, and why in your view, she's so symbolic or so much a reflection of today's age of data.
1: Yeah. So reality winner was a 25 year old air force veteran who had worked at the NSA and was working for an NSA contractor. And she was in the midst of a kind of quarter life crisis, trying to figure out what she wanted to do with her life. She was not one of these people with, um, unquestioned loyalty to the security state. She's, she was, um, she is someone who thinks critically and she has politics that lean, sometimes libertarian, sometimes left. And she, um, came across in the course of her dull make work job some information suggesting that Russia had attempted to interfere in the 2016 election via some like simple sphere phishing attacks on um, like private contractors of voting systems. And so she printed out this document and she smuggled it out of the NSA building. And she sent it to The Intercept and The Intercept badly mishandled the document. The Intercept
0: is a, well, well, how would you call it? Left libertarian online magazine. Yeah,
1: it's a magazine that was founded in the wake of the Snowden revelations um, and has been incredibly important and doing very noble work in um, exposing some of the deepest parts of the security state, at least accountable parts of that state. But um, in this case, this was badly bungled and, um, she ended up in jail for five years and just recently actually got out.
0: But so what? I mean, she, isn't she just, uh, <laughs> isn't she just, a uh, sort of a, a, failed version of, uh, uh Edward Snowden. we have done some shows with, uh, Barton Gelman, who, who was one of, uh, Snowden's, uh, closest journalistic uh, associates he wrote Dark mirror of course an interesting book uh, uh, Barton's been on the show a couple of times um, I mean what makes this w- so so this woman for better or worse went to jail maybe she deserved it maybe she didn't but so what
1: <laughs> I love the question so what um Barton is a wonderful writer and, and an underappreciated prose stylist I think um okay so so what so she, in this kind of Forrest Gump manner, illustrates so much of what has gone on in this country over the past, you know, thirty now years that she's been alive. Um, she joined the military, and and you know this is maybe a little more difficult to understand from pe- for people who grew up on the coasts. But she joined the military out of a sense that the military was a humanitarian net good that she was going to be protecting the vulnerable. Um, And then she worked in the drone program and experienced some incredibly dark, um, violent encounters. Her job was, she's a linguist, so her job was to be translating from Dari and Pashto and various languages that she had learned specifically to eavesdrop. So the United States government had trained her as a linguist. They taught her these specific languages, Farsi as well, in order to eavesdrop on people in Afghanistan. And is her
0: real name reality winner? That is
1: her mean? real name. Yes, that is her real name. And and it has been a, a name.
0: Na- I mean, she has the perfect fictional name. But anyway, go on. So, okay, so she She's an innocent. I take your point. You know, she wasn't born on the coast. She wanted to do good. And she got bound up in this. And then all her illusions were shattered when she saw. But, but that's the nature of life throughout the history of human beings. There's nothing unique about that, is there, today? The state always is always disappointing, probably slightly corrupt. There's always an element of surveillance. What makes reality winner so different from any other whistleblower, shall we say? in history
1: well okay so she's forced to pay attention to these acts of violence that most of us including myself are very busy not paying attention to right like there there's so much in our midst that we don't want to look at that might be the carceral state it might be the security state it might be the war on terror it might be torture um and in the course of this she becomes disillusioned but she's trapped in a way because um part of part of what she was seeking in joining up with the military is she wanted to get out of this country right she wanted to experience the world and this seemed to her a way out it seemed to her a way to have experiences um but i mean
0: she couldn't she couldn't leave the country and start her life again without working for the state and then giving away state secrets.
1: Well, I mean, I, sh- I think she was surprised to discover that her entire military experience would take place like in a cubicle in an office park in Maryland.
0: And then but she should not have been though, should she? I mean, isn't that standard?
1: Is it standard? I, I don't think that's, you know, like the Hollywood vision of where a you know, military career takes you. And that's probably not what she was promised by various recruiters. So what I'm saying is, essentially, she, and then she's like an ordinary person who gets sucked into this massive, but largely unacknowledged um, security state workforce. So there's a 100,000 people in this country who go to work every day and can't say what they do. And it's not not just in D.C., right? It's in like Tampa and Salt Lake City. Um, The surveillance state is is distributed in ways we typically don't acknowledge. Um, and so that was interesting to me that this work had become ordinary and this, and but for the vast majority of people, they just go to work and they encounter secrets and they absorb that moral harm of keeping secrets that they probably know ought to be made public. And, but that reality just wasn't capable of that. I mean, part of what makes her an interesting character to write about is that when we think of people creating conflict, we usually think of them as self-interested, but a reality winner is someone who just cannot help going around trying to improve people in a way that's often not welcome and creates conflict everywhere she goes. Well, and it
0: sounds like maybe the movie, maybe it'll be a sort of the next version of being there or something uh it's a com- i mean it's it is- how hollywood treats it whether they'll turn her into a hero persecuted by the deep state how different is she from chelsea manning or of course edward snowden i half joked earlier that she's just the the, the unsuccessful version of snowden uh, are people like snowden and winner and manning are they all examples of a new generation of i don't know how to describe it of 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 disillusioned bureaucrats
1: yes so you know 20 years ago the the stereotype of someone who would have blown the whistle at the nsa was like a 60 year old man who had some grievance right some particular grievance having to do with with his workplace um with all of these very young whistleblowers, all of them under 30, also Daniel Hale. um, These are people who often came from humble, like working class backgrounds, were largely self-taught.
0: Yeah, there's Jay Meyer writes about uh, Hale. Um, Well, does that make them any more, you're you're suggesting that makes them more virtuous because they're from the working class class. I'm
1: just suggesting that there's a change and there are people who, feel, I think, a personal relationship to the media that that 60-year-old man working at the NSA doesn't. So if you're watching, um, you know, some personality from The Intercept or listening to them on a podcast every week, you feel that you have a relationship to that person. You think, this person wants this document or I could trust this person yeah. with cash. And that's new. And that's also- That's and- our
0: social media. But that's not a world of data. That's our social media age. the doing away of boundaries. So everything- Is immediate.
1: I mean, I think that is data. (laughs) Like that, that's the world we live in, in which everything leaves a trace and is transmissible.
0: Well, your treatment of data, the word data, uh, Kerry suggests it's rather like the way in which the Christians use the word God. If you use it broadly enough, everything is implicated. I mean, it's such a vague use of the word. I'm not convinced, I have to say, but maybe I'm wrong. So
1: that's totally fine. You don't have to use that word, but like clearly something has changed in that we're leaving traces of ourselves everywhere. And what, you, what would have been a conversation that disappeared into the either ne- and dissipated and was never again brought to your attention or even existed memory mm. is now with you forever. That's what has changed. It doesn't matter what you call it.
0: So your book has a cast of remarkable characters. Philip Walker-Lind, another very unusual fellow, um lady gaga how does it does this add up though as you say bottoms up is a collection of essays can one write about this world in and and it comes back to your your term of the coordinates of hereness in a world of here of this coordinates of hereness can one write narrative nonfiction, or is it by definition need to be Fragmented into essays isn't is if that's the reality, then how do you write about it?
1: I mean I think i'm I'm personally not very interested in nonfiction that's not trying to do something new or is um bringing an unexpected tone to to its material so I'll, I'll give you an example like when i my first job was working at a newspaper in the military dictatorship of Myanmar, also called Burma. And everything we wrote was censored by the government. I mean, we had to fax it to a guy who faxed it back to us with big black X's before it could be published. Um, It's the kind of thing that if you encountered it in Hollywood or even in most narrative nonfiction would be filled with like dark, ominous tones and like mm. everyone would be terrified all the time. But of course in that, that world is full of joy and play and the experience of it day to day contains like infinite absurdity. And. That is my experience of this material, right? Like this is the darkest book I will ever write, but, um, it is full of absurdity and reality mm. is a very playful person in the courtroom. Um, and, and that those are some of maybe the coordinates that I'm interested in bringing across.
0: Some people have compared your work to David Foster Wallace. And obviously we mentioned Delilo, Kafka. Are there models? I mean, they're all men. Are there models of writers um, for whom uh, you're, I wouldn't say emulating, but you've been inspired with to write about America? Joan Didion is, is someone else who, comes to mind, although she's writing about a different world, if she was resurrected now, I'm guessing she might write something like this.
1: Um, I'm deeply um, moved and inspired by the essays of Joan Didion. And I also, I mentioned Jory Graham before, and um, the poet, and you know, when I was first writing about this material, I was really frustrated with every book that I would encounter that seemed to be on the subject of surveillance. it it felt like it would swerve in a different direction. Like nothing was getting at the heart of the meaning that I was seeking, except for a book by Joy Graham called Runaway. And, and she was talking about what it is to feel overwhelmed, what what data does to the mind. Like she was creating a image or not an image, but a mood that reflected that anxiety I was talking about before in a way I hadn't seen before um, and, you know, I think there are some things that can't really be accomplished in prose that can be in poetry. So, yeah, those are two really important influences. I mean, there's many more. Um, I'm a huge Thomas De Quincey fan. Um, but, yeah, there, you know, you, you resurrect so many of your influences as you're writing. There's too many to name.
0: Do you and, and and I know this is a I wouldn't say a dumb question, but it's a it's it's a question that you will destroy um, or certainly want <laughs> to destroy. Do you feel? I mean, we live, and, and I mean, you and I would, well, I would certainly believe this. You probably would agree with. We live in an age, this new abnormal, when no one knows what to believe. Paranoia, rumor threat of violence of some violence of this what you call this deep state it's a culture rather than a physical thing you say you can't write about this stuff for sure and that you're critical of the new york times for what you call its pose of journalism but you are published by a major publisher you're taken seriously you work for a large magazine as well do you feel that you have a responsibility And I guess that implies a moral responsibility to try to make sense of the world for your reader in contrast to creating work, which you can do because you're obviously enormously talented, a world of infinite mirrors, which only compounds your readers and your listeners and your viewers' distrust of reality of the state, only compounds the paranoia of America in the 2020s.
1: I am very interested in the sensibility that allows somebody to discern what is true. I don't think we've done a good job of defining it. It's something I talk about in a piece I wrote for New York Magazine about the January 6th um, rioters.
0: Mm, Which is Um, a perfect January 6th. Is a perfect drama for our age. I mean, it encapsulates every bizarre element of it. But yes,
1: yes, Um, and I think there's so much like sensitive, fine-tuned judgment in figuring out what is true and what is not true, and um, it's it's like it's it's more of like a poetic sensibility than it is intelligence, like. Very, very intelligent people believed on January 6th that like Trump was going to like arrest pedophiles, right? <laughs> like um, that he was gonna like rise from the ashes and like be president and arrest pedophile. Like you can, you can have an incredibly powerful mind that gets misdirected because it lacks this particular sensibility. And I'm interested in thinking and writing uh, toward that sensibility. I don't know that it's like, you know, it's like a service-oriented work that I'm interested in, but I think there's something about how we've misperceived what it means to perceive what is true. Uh, And one of the really interesting, just talking about how January 6th represents so much of what we're talking about here, um, it's so interesting to me that so much of the paranoia that drove January 6th is this paranoia that we're being watched all the time by unseen forces. And yet the infinite data we have on January 6th is from people filming themselves and uploading onto social media their various crimes.
0: It's paranoia on both sides. So it's an interesting response. So I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, what you're suggesting is that given that today's reality is, shall we say, poetic. Uh, and that's the poets who can make sense of reality rather than the New York Times journalists. Um, I all, want to be
1: clear. I, am not,
0: well, I, I poet, think that the okay. work
1: that the New York Times does God. is incredibly And I've drawn on that work yeah. for this book. Well,
0: like, you got it. We all hate the New York Times. We pretend to like <laughs> hate it, we hate it. Okay, well, we pretend to hate it, but we like it. Okay. <laughs> or we pretend to like it and we hate it. Either way. But um, So do you think your... And this is an interesting sort of end point, although there's never any end, obviously, to this kind of conversation. Do you think your responsibility, then, as a published writer, as someone who's not just on Twitter or the internet screaming and shouting, and that you do have a platform which reflects some people's faith that you have something more valuable to say than others, that what you're trying to do with your reader and your listener? is educate them in a poetic sensibility to make sense of our, shall we say, poetic reality?
1: I don't think I'm comfortable with the word educate. Okay, Um,
0: well, what word would you choose instead (laughs) of educate as a writer? Because people pick up your book, whether you like it or not, to be educated.
1: I'm interested in giving the reader a challenging artistic encounter um and i hope that i've done that here
0: well you're definitely a challenge that was a challenging artistic encounter (laughs) congratulations on the book and we'll do this again very interesting conversation thank you so much
1: that was so fun thanks a lot